All right. Well, definitely great food tonight, but we're here for our spiritual food first and foremost. Amen. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52 is our text, brothers, for tonight. And I've titled this particular passage, Jesus the Living Water. Okay, Jesus the Living Water. Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. How many of you have read C.S. Lewis? Yeah, uh, I find some of, I mean, I didn't agree with everything that C.S. Lewis wrote or all of his stances on everything, but I found him very helpful over the years in, in uh, multiple topics. But this is what he wrote concerning the claims of Jesus. Quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, someone says, but I don't accept this claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the, de the devil of hell. You must make your choice, he says. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut, shut, shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with, some, with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, end quote. What a great quote, huh? It's true words. There's no way that anyone can simply be neutral about Jesus, having heard Jesus speak the way that he did and do the types of things that he, that he did, right? Or, or say the types of things that he said about himself. And we've been learning this here from the Gospel of John. And here in our passage today, I want you guys to think about this. Here we are once again in this text, and you've studied it a little bit heading into this time. Here we are again confronted with yet another staggering statement from the Lord Jesus Christ. A statement that's going to polarize people and once again draw a line on the sand. Now, you guys remember, if you look at John chapter 7 and verse 2, it tells us that this is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, and if you remember what we've been talking about, this is a commemoration feast of the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, the first generation that came out of Egypt. And this also is a celebration, this particular feast of God's protection and provision. And so if you remember what we were talking about last week and what's going on in Jerusalem, the atmosphere in Jerusalem is full of energy. It is electric there are thousands of pilgrims pouring into Jerusalem from outside of or Palestine and outside of Palestine. Thousands of sacrifices are being offered throughout this eight-day celebration and commemoration. And it's at the peak of this great feast, brothers, that the Lord Jesus gives the ultimate invitation. And that's your first point if you're taking notes, okay? You must heed, in this passage, the invitation of Jesus. Heed the invitation of Jesus in verses 37 through 39. Ultimately, this is the purpose of John's gospel, that we might see Jesus as the Son of God and that we might heed his invitation to believe in him, that we might have eternal life. That's John's purpose statement in chapter 20 and verse 31, right? These things have been written about Jesus, that, he is, that you might believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have what in his name? Life. 
eternal life, quality and quantity of life. Now look at verse 37. Verse 37 tells us that Jesus' invitation came on the last day of the feast, the great day. That's when this invitation came. But you need to feel the moment, okay? Like in a movie, right? That you watch. Where when a climactic moment in, or the peak of that movie is coming, all of a sudden you hear this dramatic sound effect in the background. Think about that here. Okay, there's this climax that's going to take place. Well, it takes place on the last day of the feast, the great day, our text tells us. So, you see, most believe that this is now the conclusion, most commentators are the culmination of what was an eight-day feast. And throughout the feast, there was a number of rituals that were performed. We've talked about this a bit. There were booths or tents that were set up in, in remembrance of how the first generation Israelites went from place to place, right, in the wilderness as they wandered around. There were also thousands of sacrifices that were made to God as an expression of gratitude from the people. And there were other rituals that were performed as well. But I want you to think about this. Of special significance as we think about our text, is the ritual of water pouring on the altar of the temple. There was this pouring of water on the altar, of the main altar in the temple, as, a, as an offering of thanksgiving to God. Now, mind you, there are some differences of opinion as to the details, okay? I think as you've worked through maybe some commentaries, you've seen this. There are some differences of opinions from various individuals as to the, the specific details. But generally speaking... What would happen is that for the first seven days of the feast, some type of temple official, most likely a priest, would take some kind of a golden receptacle or a golden pitcher, and he would take a short walk to what was known as the Pool of Siloam, some 100 yards from the temple, approximately the length of the football field from the temple. And so the priest would take this golden pitcher and fill it up with water in this Pool of Siloam. He would then head back in procession uh, to the temple, and this water would be poured out every single day in its fullness upon the central altar of the temple as an offering to God. Now, as far as we know, this happened every single day for seven days, but on the eighth day, this would not happen. It would not be repeated. Now, think about this. The significance of this ritual was to commemorate how God in the wilderness wanderings provided fresh water for the people through Moses at the waters of Meribah. Remember that? God told Moses to speak to the rock, and what did Moses do? He hid it, right? But God still provided fresh water for the people, so it was a remembrance of, of God's past deliverance. I mean, without water, the people would have perished in the wilderness. They would have died instead of being refreshed. It was also significant in the, in the present time for them and what they were celebrating because now at the close of the harvest season, God had provided abundant water for their crops. And so they were showing gratitude as well. But it was also significant for, for not only the past and the present, but for the, for the future because it foreshadowed how one day future there would be a kingdom on earth where there will be literally rivers of living water. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1 as well as Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 9, talks about this. And so picture this, men. Picture Jesus there in the temple where he's been teaching. And it's the last day, the great day, and Jesus is most likely situated somewhere strategic in the temple where the crowds are gathered. That's the, the setting here. And it's at this time, 
And with this imagery in mind that verse 37 tells us, notice in verse 37, that Jesus stood up as if to get everyone's attention. Jesus stood up and he cried out, not discreetly, not monotone, but with this loud outcry that could be heard all over the temple by the crowds. I mean, what a moment, right? What a moment. And here's the invitation from the great evangelist. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Here they are remembering God's provision of water for survival. And what does Jesus say? If anyone is thirsty, spiritually speaking, come to me if you want to survive. I mean, that's an amazing, staggering statement, isn't it? Only God can say that. If anyone, he says, this is a universal call to any and all that Jesus gives here. It's for anyone who is, who is in need, who thirsts. They understood the imagery. They understood the imagery from living in a desert land in Palestine where, as you know, water was indispensable. But Jesus is speaking about something greater than just physical water, some physical substance, isn't he? He's talking about those who, who are thirsty in a spiritual sense. He's talking about spiritually needing something. For those who are dried up spiritually, for those who are parched up spiritually, for any who are in need of spiritual refreshment, in desperate need of life, he says, you need to partake of me. Amazing. Let him come to me. In the Old Testament, they had come to the fountain of Meribah, Right? the Old Testament first-generation Israelites. But now what Jesus is saying, he says, come to me. I am the source of this living water. I am the fountain of living waters. Again, this is a staggering self-claim that Jesus is making here. Come to me. He is the, the great well from which they can draw endlessly that never, ever is exhausted. You know, for several years, I think I've shared my testimony with a, a few of you, more extensive than what was recorded but for several years, a, a huge part of my testimony as a believer and the Lord shaping me is just traveling to many different countries. I've traveled to 21 countries by God's grace and the opportunities that he gave me to do that. 17 Latin American countries and then four, four countries in Southeast Asia. And brothers, I, I could never be the same after having visited those countries. I got to tell you right now. So for years, I spent time traveling a lot. I was working with this mercy ministry that provided resources to poverty-stricken gospel-centered churches in other countries. And then we also did leadership training with these pastors who would then not only take the physical resources, but they, they then wanted theological training. I mean, uh, I, that's one of the reasons why I love training in the Compass Bible Institute so much in the context of the local church, because there are so many people that I've met, brothers, who would give anything to come for one class at the Compass Bible Institute. One class. And yet we have it right here. We, we, every single Sunday morning, we show up to this building and here are the classes available, right? So that's the kind of stuff that we saw, some amazing things I learned during those travels. But I'll never forget once visiting one of our partners in, in El Salvador. And if you travel to some of these third world countries, you know that one of the challenges in these poverty-stricken areas, especially in these rural parts, is the lack of food and especially the lack of clean, digestible water. 
Water is something that we take for granted, right? You wake up in the morning and what do you do? You, you turn on that shower head and, and you just trust that clean water is going to come out. And if it doesn't, if it ever ha hasn't for you, who are you calling? You're calling the, the company, right? Department of Water and Power. We just take that for granted. But in these countries, you, they, don't, they can't take that for granted. It's not a given. This is the reality. Filthy, dirty, contaminated water is what they have always had. Oftentimes this leads to physical deformities in some of these people. In fact, I met some of those families, especially little kids who were physically deformed because of contaminated water. So, you know, we've inter we interacted with a lot of people like that. So what one godly pastor did, just faithful godly pastor in El Salvador, what he did was he procured financial resources from American partners, and he built this amazing, massive well of fresh water in this rural area away from the, from the surrounding villages, but within walking distance for the people, a few miles away for the people in this strategic location where everybody can come into this central location and they can draw out water. And, and I'll never forget what I saw when he took us to this well to show us what, had, what, what, what they had built after months of, of, being, of being, uh, building this thing. Hundreds and hundreds of people, brothers. Hundreds and hundreds of people who had walked from miles and miles away with containers and receptacles to get this clean water. Because this was the, the only way that they were going to survive. Desperate. Some of these people were in tears in line because they had traveled miles and miles away to get this clean water. Many mamas, mothers, they're to draw water for their families. That's forever been etched in my mind. And as I studied this passage over the years, in the passages I've taught it, I think about that particular illustration. I mean, they needed that water for survival. That was their only chance for survival for them. And isn't this what our Lord is saying here? Spiritually speaking, he's saying to them and to us, you want to survive spiritually, you must drink of me. I am the sufficient one. I am enough. You must come to me. In the Old Testament, the Israelites may have had this physical rock with fresh water, but now 1 Corinthians 10 4 says that the rock in the Old Testament ultimately foreshadowed Christ, who is the rock, right? He is the rock, it says in 1 Corinthians 10 4. The one who gives eternal life to all who come to him. Do you remember back in John chapter 4 and verse 10? When Pastor PJ taught this passage uh, in John 4.10 to what Jesus said to the woman at the well. If you knew the gift of God, Jesus said, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, he told her. Not some physical substance, but, but a person who gives life to your longing soul, he was telling her. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, speaking of the water of the well, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, he told her. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, lady, there is no water like the water that I can give you. I give you myself if you will partake. And then in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, I love that text. Revelation 22:17 says the spirit with a capital S and the bride with a capital B say come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I love that. It's free. Freely it's offered. 
Freely come to Jesus that you may have life, says Scripture. Freely come to him that you might have quality and quantity of life. Now notice this. Accepting Jesus' invitation to come and drink means that a person must acknowledge their need, right? That's what's implied. And he who is, if anyone is thirsty, implied in there is that if you are going to receive Jesus, you must acknowledge that you have a need. What does that mean for us? Obviously acknowledging that, that you are a sinner, that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you have nothing to bring to the cross except your sin. You come with empty hands of faith to the foot of the cross. Spiritually bankrupt, in need of spiritual life. You are thirsty for this water, for this person who is Jesus. And then what is the means by which one receives this water? There's no ambiguity, is there, in what Jesus is, is saying. In verse 38, it's for whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me, that's, that's it. Simple trust. Simple belief. As our pastor puts it, a transfer of trust from self to Jesus alone. Works don't save. Money doesn't save. Your talents don't save you. Your resources don't save you, right? What does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Answer, nothing. There's nothing that you can do. It's by faith. He says, whoever believes in me. Not some inherent goodness. Nobody is good, right? Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. No one is good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does the song say? Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I what? I cling. What does God require of a person in order to be saved? Trust. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, and he is the object of our faith, isn't he? Jesus says in verse 38, whoever believes in me, he is the object of faith. He is the one who saves. Not even our faith saves us, by the way. Your faith didn't save you. Jesus is the one who saves, right? Faith simply applies the work of Christ to us, his righteousness, his perfect life, his atoning death on the cross, his glorious resurrection. But the one who saves is, is Jesus. Not even your faith saves you. Jesus saves. Faith itself is also a gift of God. Later on, he will say in John 14, 4, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Boy, there's no ambiguity in that, is there? It's only through exclusively through Christ that you can be saved. He is the only way of salvation. He's declaring himself to be so in this passage. And in every other passage that we've seen in the Gospel of John, and every passage that we will see, that Jesus, he's saying, I am exclusively the way of salvation. Don't drink the Kool-Aid of our culture that is saying that there are multiple ways to heaven. Are there multiple paths to heaven, brothers? Absolutely not. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There aren't multiple ways to heaven. Not all paths lead to eternal life. Acts 4.12 says, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? So the name of Christ. His name is Jesus. He is the one who saves. Listen, as you think about the exclusivity of Jesus and what he says here, that you need to come to him and trust in him and believe in him alone. 
As you think about the exclusive claims of Christ as the only way of salvation, long gone are the days, brothers, when we, would, we should simply hear someone say to us, well, you know, I believe in God, you know. Long gone are the days where we should just simply hear those words and not push back on what people are saying when they say that. You know what we should ask? Which God do you believe in? Which God? You believe in God? Great. Which God is that? Is it the God of, of Buddha, Buddhism? That God doesn't save. There's no salvation in the God of Buddha, right? Jesus is the only way who saves. He's the only Savior. What about, you know, Islam? Does Muhammad save? Muhammad is dead. Everybody knows that. There's no salvation in Muhammad. Do you believe in, in the Virgin Mary? Does she save? Have you heard the words of the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1? She declares herself a humble servant of the Lord, she says. She, wasn't, she, she never declared herself to be a goddess that would be the object of somebody's salvation. No. Is it a God of your own imagination? There's no salvation in a God of your own imagination. Salvation comes through the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Amen? Exclusively. When you read these claims of Christ, including in our text, about if anyone is thirsty, he must come to me and believe in me. Jesus is declaring himself unreservedly and exclusively the only way of salvation. And that's part of John's point here. Please note that the invitation, by the way, is for all, isn't it? From our perspective, it's for everyone. The invitation is accepted by faith or trust in Jesus alone, but it's for everyone. From our perspective, brothers, we preach the gospel to everyone and leave the results to God, right? He's the one working in the hearts of people, as we're going to see in a few minutes. And notice, what is the reward for accepting the invitation? Drop down to verse 38. What's the reward for accepting Jesus' invitation? Whoever believes in me, verse 38, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's most likely an allusion to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8, which says that on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. Or perhaps Isaiah 44 and verse 3 which foretells of a time when God will pour water on the thirsty land, on the dry ground. How? By his spirit with a capital S. By his spirit. That makes sense then that why John adds in verse 39, but this he spoke, this is John's commentary about what Jesus just said, but this he spoke of the spirit with a capital S, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified question has the spirit been absent to this point only to arrive at pentecost which is what jesus is talking about has the spirit been absent of course not spirit of god has always been active since the very beginning when he was hovering over the surface of the deep during creation right he's always been active throughout the old testament but his ministry has looked different at various times for example, in the Old Testament, the Spirit empowered specific people for a specific time, for a specific task that God wanted them to accomplish. Like the temple architects and the artisans. The scriptures speak about the fact that the Spirit of God came upon them. For what? For a specific time, for a specific task. And even King Saul 
the first king of the nation of Israel. The Spirit of God came upon him for a specific time, but then he rebelled against the Lord and the Spirit left him. Does that mean that he was saved and then he lost his salvation? Absolutely not. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was, a, was what you might describe a theocratic anointing kind of ministry. It was a theocracy, a nation under God, and there was an anointing for a specific time, for a specific task of the Holy Spirit upon individuals to accomplish God's purposes. That's what it was. So the Holy Spirit has always been active, but now what Jesus is saying is that in the future, by which he means Pentecost, when the church, this new living organism called the church will be birthed, Jesus is saying that the Spirit of God will now have a new kind of ministry here on earth. The Spirit will now give a, a person new life. Remember back in John chapter 3? Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, capital S, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that salvation, the Spirit now permanently indwells a person. Romans 8, 5 says that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Right? So there's a permanent indwelling now in the new covenant. You know this, the Spirit will now illumine us, encourages us, admonishes us, teaches us, opens up our, our spiritual understanding to the truth. The Spirit now seals us for the ultimate day of salvation. He's the guaranteed down payment, Ephesians chapter 1, of our guaranteed salvation. So such is now the new ministry of the Holy Spirit under this new covenant. But what a glorious invitation, right? What a glorious invitation of, by Jesus. He says, I am the object of salvation. What is the means? It's to trust or believe in me. That's how you accept this invitation. Believe in me. Transfer trust from yourself and your own resources to me. And the benefit of this invitation is that the one who accepts Jesus' invitation will never thirst again. He will receive the precious Holy Spirit. Brothers, I pray, or friends, I pray that, to, that you, ha you have already heeded the invitation of Jesus. I know that many of you have already. You're believers. You're in Christ. You have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, per John's purpose statement in John 20, 31, can I exhort you, if you're here tonight and you have not heeded the invitation of Jesus, tonight is the day of salvation for you. Don't wait another day. Today is the day of salvation for you. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have, we should be continually finding our rest and our refreshment in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We should live knowing that he's enough. Live knowing that he is sufficient. All right, heed the invitation of Jesus. Secondly, if you're taking notes, we must trust in the work of the Spirit. We must trust in the work of the Spirit. That's in verses 40 through 52. We've, come, we've covered some of this before as far as the responses of the crowds in the Gospel of John. That's an ongoing theme, right, uh, of John. There's, there are these amazing things that Jesus is saying, amazing things that Jesus is doing, and there are constant responses to our Lord's staggering statements and self-claims. You have those who are divided and conflicted. Just drop down to verse 43. Notice, those who are divided and conflicted here. So there was a division, verse 43, among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. I mean, people have, have 
different opinions about Jesus. They don't know what to do with Jesus. They are conflicted. Some of them are confused. Some of them are divided. But then there are those who are flat out hostile, aren't they? And at the forefront are the chief priests and the Pharisees, who at least from a human perspective should have known better. Look at verse 45. These guys are hostile. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Remember, there was an official delegation of temple officials that had been sent by the religious leaders, by the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, to arrest Jesus. They come back without Jesus. Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man, they say. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? I mean, how condescending, right? Like, well, why? They could have asked these religious leaders, why do you guys think so? What makes this Jesus so different? What did you hear him say that you've been impacted by? No. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, why are you guys drinking the Kool-Aid of this Jesus? Have you seen us do that? Verse 49 but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I mean, these religious leaders are explicitly antagonistic. Not only do they attack the temple guard who themselves are struggling, they speak down of the crowds of anyone who is wrestling with Jesus' statements. They even come down hard on one of their own. Remember Nicodemus? Down in verses 50 to 52, even Nicodemus, they come after him. I mean, these religious leaders are, are hostile speaking condescendingly about anyone who is considering Jesus' statements about himself. They are implying that everyone else are a bunch of ignoramuses who don't know the scriptures. Then in verse 52, they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I mean, think about the foolishness of this. From their perspective, no prophet could come from Galilee, and yet, brothers, many had, right? Who are some examples? Jonah, try Hosea, try Micah. I mean, these guys didn't even do their own homework as far as knowing who had come from Galilee. And then you have the, not only the hostile, but I want you to not miss this. You also have the searching, the searching. There are those who are searching, inquiring, asking good questions as the Holy Spirit is working in them, softening their hearts to the truth. You have the searching among the crowds. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? I mean, these folks are asking genuine, sincere questions. This is what happens when the Spirit of God is working genuinely in the hearts of people, right? They begin to ask questions, thought-provoking questions. Their hearts are stirred. Is this the prophet who Moses promised back in Deuteronomy 18, 18, they're asking? Is this the Messiah, the long-awaited one? They're not sure. They're not sure, but they're genuinely, sincerely inquiring. And then others in verse 41 are wondering if the Messiah could possibly be a Galilean. You have the, the searching as the Spirit of God is working in their hearts, not only amongst the crowds, but then you also have temple officials who are searching as well, right? Drop down in verse 46. They're saying, no one ever spoke 
like this man. I mean, these temple officials who were sent out to arrest Jesus have now returned without Jesus because they've been impacted. They've been gripped by what Jesus is saying. They're searching as well, for they've just heard Jesus' piercing words, Jesus' invitation. We, know, we don't know for sure, but maybe some of these people later on were some of those who were, became followers of Jesus Christ. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but we do know here that they're genuinely wrestling with the truth, aren't they? But perhaps no one stands out most amongst the searching than one Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, a prominent religious leader. Verse 50, Nicodemus, notice. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, back in John chapter 4, you remember he'd come to Jesus by night, by, by stealth. He had come to him before and who was one of them, one of the elite religious leaders was this Nicodemus, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? I mean, Nicodemus here is going out on the limb. He is going to bat for Jesus here. You guys, you religious leaders, say that you are law-abiding Jews, but you're not even going to, to uh, give this guy a hearing? You're not even going to listen to the witnesses concerning this man, Jesus? You're not even going to investigate all of this? You are the ones who are violating the law. He is defending Jesus. He's going to bat for Jesus. He's sticking his neck out for the Lord. And so Nicodemus here... At least in this text, he's wrestling, he's searching. The Spirit of God, brothers, was working in Nicodemus's heart. I don't think at this time he's a believer, most likely. But we know that, that he ends up later on, at the end of John 19, what does he do? He partners with Joseph of Arimathea in taking the body of Jesus and preparing it for burial. I believe that Nicodemus went from searching to believer after the Lord is crucified. Man! What an example. What an example of how the Holy Spirit works in the heart of a person, right? I mean, if Ephesians chapter 2 says that every single person is spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, it takes the Holy Spirit awakening and quickening the heart of a person for them to respond to the truth concerning Jesus. And that is what is taking place here in Nicodemus's heart. From a human perspective, you would have never imagined that a Nicodemus, a religious leader, the teacher of Israel, a prominent elite um, uh, member of the Sanhedrin, would ever come to know Christ. And yet this is what is taking place here. The great teacher of Israel who himself will later come to believe in Jesus. You see, seeds had been planted in Nicodemus' heart. God was working in his heart. And I think this is instructive for us, isn't it? This is why, brothers, we should never give up hope with those with whom we're sharing the gospel, right? We should never give up hope. And we should trust that as we're faithful, that the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of people, as in this passage with Nicodemus and others, even with the Jewish officers. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've heard some crazy stories and I've experienced some crazy stories about people who I never thought would come to know Jesus who are now walking with the Lord. How many of you have had some of those testimonies that if I opened up mic here, you can get up and say, this particular person stands out to me. I never thought from a human perspective that they would ever come to know Jesus. But today they are walking with the Lord. It is a miracle, right? And really, all of us 
who are walking with Christ right now, who are believers, who are in Christ, are a miracle when you think about the fact that we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Whether you have, a, from a human perspective, a dramatic testimony, or you were some moralist who was prim and proper on the outside, but now you've come to know Christ, you were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, just as much as the explicit sinner, right? All of us were in the same place. So we could think of people, though, that from a human perspective, we would have never thought would have come to know Jesus. I mean, I've met a, I met a man in his 70s a few years ago on a trip to Peru, and then on the way back, we're at the airport, and I finally got a chance to talk to this guy from, from the outside. I mean, he just seems stern and just kind of standoffish, right? But he just started, I just asked him, like, brother, tell me your testimony. And before you know it, the guy was in tears talking to me about the fact that he was hostile and antagonistic toward his wife. For 30 years, she was a believer, and he was not. And I mean, they would, he, he would go to church with her just to honor her to whatever capacity, but he was ver verbally abusive. He would come back home from the, from the services or whatever and, and start telling her about all the hypocrites that he met that particular morning. But then one Sunday, he hears the message of the gospel, and the Spirit of God worked in his heart, and he broke. He came home, and he was weeping in the living room, and his wife walked in, and basically he never cried. He never showed any emotion outside of anger, this guy. And he says, and my wife came in, and I was sitting there just whimpering, crying, and she asked me, what is the matter with you? He said, I can't believe that all of these years I've been rejecting this one who has been so good and dying on the cross for me, an undeserving sinner. And she starts crying, and they both start crying and just rejoicing in the work of the Lord in his life. Amazing. See? That's why we must be faithful and trust in the Spirit's work in the heart of a person, right? Because anyone can come to know Christ as the Spirit of God works. I've known a, of a former stripper. Yes, of a former stripper who now serves alongside of her husband, who is a pastor, brothers. She repented of her lifestyle, and she trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now she lives to even uh, invest into women and disciple women. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? As the Spirit of God powerfully works in the heart of people. I know of a former athlete, a brother who, whose idol was to be a professional uh, golfer. I mean, that's all he ever did. Hours and hours and hours, and all of his money would go towards resources for golfing. And then the Lord, had a, he had a collision with Jesus. He repents of his sin. He trusts in Christ. And now he serves the Lord in a children's ministry in another church. Amazing. I've known of a former moralist, somebody who trusted in their works, a legalist who, who, would, who would impose her views, her unbiblical views on other people and viewed herself as better than other people. She had a collision with Jesus, realized that she was not a good person, that she needed the righteousness of Christ imputed to her account, and the Spirit of God broke her. She repented of her sins. She trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you can tell stories like that as well? Or have known of stories like that? Yeah. Yes. Remarkable gospel stories of God's saving grace, such as one Nicodemus, and potentially some of these other people in our text. Stories of God saving grace, underscoring, listen, the importance, as our pastor has been encouraging us on Sunday morning, of faithfully knowing the message and proclaiming the message of the gospel and planting seeds so that the Spirit of God works in the heart of hearts of spiritually dead sinners. In your workplace, in your neighborhood, 
in your home perhaps, maybe extended family. Every single one of us will have divine appointments just this week, opportunities with people in our particular circles of influence, context of influence, people that are already there for us to share the gospel with. None of us should be thinking, Lord, there are no opportunities that you've given me. Please, tomorrow, provide some, some other opportunities. Brothers, they're right before you. I can promise you that. If you are attentive and sensitive to the Spirit's leading, they're already there before you. Opportunities to share Christ and then praying and trusting that the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of people. I've been praying diligently by God's grace that as we continue to walk through the gospel of John, you and I may fall more in love with Christ so that he would be so compelling. We would be so gripped in our affections by who Jesus is that we would want to tell others about him. This is our mission, isn't it? To make disciples. That's why Compass Bible Church is here in South Orange County. And that's why uh, Compass Bible Church AV and the other Compass churches are in the locations where they're at. To be on mission to fulfill the Great Commission. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. I pray that you are about the mission of making disciples, that Christ may be exalted. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, oh Lord, what an amazing invitation by our Lord Jesus Christ here in this text. I'm so grateful for the fact that we have these amazing snapshots, portraits of the living Christ, the one who calls us all to follow after him, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our great king. Father, I pray tonight that if there are individuals in here who, Lord, are gripped by your truth, who have really not given their life to Christ, who have not made that commitment, who have not repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ, that tonight would be the day of salvation, Lord. That tonight there would be a sense of brokenness over their sin, and a sense of cherishing and treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, for us who are in Christ, Lord, I pray that we might functionally, practically live out the implications of the sufficiency of Jesus. That Lord Jesus would truly be enough. That we would follow him. That we would want to serve him wholeheartedly. That we would want to tell others about King Jesus. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name.